couple of people asked recently, why don't we raise the screen when we're finished singing? And I asked around, some of those have been here longer than I have, and uh, there's no answer. So we <laughs> thought we'd try raising the screen after we finish singing. If you're one of those people who struggle with change, uh, embrace it as a means of sanctification or something like that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 53. Mark chapter 6, verse 53. And I'm going to go right into chapter 7 as far as verse 23. Have you got that? We're going to begin in Mark 6, 53, and go as far as chapter 7, verse 23. Hear the word of the Lord. When they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him, some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. 
I'm almost 100% certain I have mentioned Lindisfarne to you before in a sermon. You've likely forgotten. Uh, Lindisfarne is located in Northumbria on the coast of northeast England. I visited it years ago as a boy. And Lindisfarne is a tidal island, meaning uh, the causeway that links the island to the mainland is covered twice a day by the tides. And so it is a tidal island. When the tide is out, it's possible to drive from the mainland across the causeway to the island. And there are signs posted on either side of the causeway, warning signs, uh, letting people know when it is safe to cross. It indicates the time during the day when it is safe to drive, and it warns you dare not leave after this time. Because if you leave after this time, you will not make it across the causeway because the tide comes in so fast. Despite the warning signs, on average, each month, there is at least one car stranded on the causeway. Why? Because someone decides he's wiser than the warning sign. Someone decides to just ignore the warning sign. Someone decides, probably to the protest of his wife, that he knows better than what is clearly posted on the warning sign. Uh, Warning signs, warning labels, they serve a purpose, don't they? Uh, They they, they serve to warn us against the consequences of a certain course of action. And more often than not, those those consequences are dire consequences. We ignore warning signs and warning labels to our own peril. What we have essentially in the text I've read, what we have basically in the verses I've read this morning is a, is a big warning sign. These verses constitute, just imagine in your mind's eye, that this sign with that word in bold red letters, warning, warning. And what these verses warn against is the title for this sermon, Vain Worship. I lack imagination. I didn't come up with that. I extracted that right out of verse 7, where the Lord Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29, and where the Lord Jesus rebukes the Jews, the scribes and Pharisees in particular, because their worship is vain. That is what these verses are. They are a huge warning sign, neon lights flashing, warning the peril of vain Worship. Now check that. We hear the word vain. We normally vacillate in one direction, right? We, we, we hear that word vain and how we use it, use it common usage today. We think of uh, people who spend too much time in front of a mirror, right? Uh, they're vain. People who are preoccupied with their physical appearance. People who derive some sort of secret delight, satisfaction from what they induce and kindle in others as they look at them. Their physical appearance. Well, that person is vain. He is vain. She is vain. That's not how the word's being used here, although the root is the same because the word essentially means empty. So a vain person is someone who is really empty. That's how it's used here, an emptiness, vain worship. Uh, It is void 
of substance. It is profitless and it is pointless. The peril of vain worship. Uh, This should concern us. This should concern you. And this should concern me because it begs the question, are we engaged even this day in vain worship? Or what what we're doing right now, is this vain? Vain worship. From the time I walked in here at 10.30, I heard Cody pray, I heard Chris pray, and I engaged in these songs and read these scripture meditations. And now as I hear God's word expounded and proclaimed, uh, is my worship vital? Is my worship real? Or when I cut through the exterior to my shame and to my judgment, do I discover that what I am actually engaged in is vain, profitless, and pointless? This warning sign ought to concern you, and it ought to concern me. And so we're going we're gonna to heed the warning this day, the warning as it is articulated, expressed in these verses. As I read, you, you probably noted the, these verses, a little confusing in a place or two. And so to help us navigate our way through these waters, help us navigate our way through these verses, I'm going to throw five words out there. Five words that uh, will serve, I hope, as beacons of light, that will keep us on the straight and narrow, keep us moving through the text and see the connection between the various sections and how it, how it brings us, the Lord Jesus brings us to a, to a culmination in the final section. And so the first word I want to throw out there to help us hear this warning, see this warning sign is as follows. Summation. Summation. That's the word. And we have it in verses 53 through verse 56. And here what Mark does is very simple. He sums up and summation He sums up the ministry of Christ. You go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 14. And Mark, in the earlier part of chapter 1, having introduced his gospel, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And having pointed us to the the baptism by John the Baptist, having pointed us to the Old Testament scriptures, having pointed us to the testimony of the Father, and having pointed us to, to the devil's temptation. In the 14th verse, he declares that the Lord Jesus went out where? In Galilee, proclaiming, preaching, repent, for the kingdom is at hand. From chapter 1, verse 14, all the way through here now to chapter 6, verse 53, Mark has been describing that ministry. These verses are key because they note a shift, a major shift in the book's tone, a major shift in the book's emphasis, and you'll notice it as we make our way into chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, and what follows. And so Mark brings almost this first major section of his book to a culmination by summarizing the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in Galilee. And what does he want us to note? It's found in the 56th verse. And wherever he came, that is wherever Christ came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. And so Mark The summation of the ministry of Christ in Galilee, he emphasizes what? This glorious truth that Christ is healing indiscriminately. He is healing right, left, and center. Why? That healing confirms what? His authority. 
That healing confirms what? His identity. He is indeed the Son of God. And that healing confirms what? His message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now I want you just to notice two things. Take, take note of these two facts. File them away, because we're going to come back to them. The first is this. Where is Christ healing? Right in the middle of verse 56. The marketplaces. Wherever he goes, villages, cities, countryside, he goes to the marketplaces. And that is where he is healing people. Second thing I want you to notice is how he heals people. It is through touch. As people touch the fringe, even the fringe of his garment, he heals them. Did you get those two little tidbits of information? Where does he heal? The marketplaces. So what? We'll get to it. How does he heal? Touching. Thus, the summation. Second word I want to throw out there is this. Accusation. That brings us into chapter 7 and the first five verses. Scribes and Pharisees pay Christ a visit from Jerusalem. This is the second recorded visit. The first visit, we read of it back in chapter 3. Scribes and Pharisees come up from Jerusalem. And on that occasion, at the time of their first visit, they accuse Christ of doing what? They accuse him of healing. They accuse him of casting out demons in the name of and by the power of Beelzebul. Fancy name for the devil. They are attacking his work. They are attacking what he does. Now, in this second visit, as they come up again, they don't attack so much what he does, but they attack who he is. And they accuse him of disobeying his disciples primarily, but they're really trying to get at him. They accuse him of disobeying the traditions of the elders. And so you put these two visits together. You put these two attacks together. And we discover that these scribes and these Pharisees, the religious leaders within the nation of Israel, they are bent on one purpose, one purpose alone. It is to discredit Christ. Discredit him how? By portraying him as what? A disobedient sinner who performs all these wonders by the power of the devil. That's what they're doing. In this context, the specific accusation has to do with washing hands. I know this is difficult for us to enter into because it goes all all the way back to the Old Testament and ceremonial laws concerning what's clean and what's unclean. But these scribes and these Pharisees, they accuse Christ's disciples of not washing their hands before they eat. Now kids, this has nothing to do with hygiene. When you go home today without your mom or dad even asking, You ought to wash your hands before you eat. That's good hygiene. This has nothing to do with hygiene. This has to do with being clean or unclean, defiled or not defiled in the presence of God. And it goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to the fact that in the Old Testament, God had declared certain things clean and unclean. And the Jews believed that over the course of the day, they might come into contact with something unclean unwittingly unknowingly. Therefore, before they would eat anything, they came up with all of these elaborate rituals and ceremonies 
governing the, the washing of their hands to make sure that the defilement of anything they had touched didn't by consequence, by touch, become their ceremonial defilement before God. And so it's quite possible these scribes and Pharisees come up And it's quite possible, given the context, that they witness that wonderful miracle when the Lord Jesus feeds the 5,000 men and their wives and their children. And what do they see to their horror? They see these disciples distributing food, the five loaves and the two fish, among this multitude without washing their hands. And they see this multitude eating without washing their hands. And they bring this accusation now to the Lord Jesus, seeking to discredit him, Why is it that your disciples ignore the traditions of the elders? They do not accuse him of breaking the law. They do not accuse him of disobeying the word of God. What Christ is breaking and the disciples are breaking, ignoring, they identify it. It, These are the traditions of the elders. These are rules and regulations which they have built up, they have developed over centuries governing the washing not only of their hands, but of cups and saucers and utensils. And they they want to know, they're accusing him, why is he disregarding all of that? Now, I want you to notice two facts. Uh, They parallel the two facts I asked you to remember. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand to indicate whether or not you remembered. Let me repeat them for you. Uh, The first was this. Christ heals where? In the marketplaces. Christ heals how? By touching. Now take a look at what we read there in verse 3. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. The Lord Jesus heals in the marketplaces. For the scribes and the Pharisees, the marketplace is a place of potential defilement. The Lord Jesus heals how? Through touching. For the scribes and the Pharisees, touching is a means by which defilement, by which we are defiled. And Mark is drawing this contrast between the teaching of Christ and the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He is making this contrast between the religion of Christ and the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. He is emphasizing the fact that the Lord Jesus goes into the marketplace. That the Lord Jesus identifies himself with lost humanity. And through this touching, he heals them, pointing to a far greater reality that it is through contact, identification with Christ, that he cleanses us from our sin. That's not what the scribes and Pharisees are teaching. The scribes and Pharisees do not teach an internal religion. The scribes and Pharisees are focused on an external and ceremonial religion. Hence their accusation. Why do you disobey? Why do you disregard the traditions of the elders? The third word I want you to notice. Condemnation. We arrive at verse 6. And he said to them. He does not pull his punches. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites. As it is written. And so he brings the voice of scripture from the past to the present and announces to them, you are the fulfillment. Well did Isaiah speak of you, you hypocrites. 
And he quotes from Isaiah 29, 13, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And now he sums it up in the 8th verse, having quoted from Isaiah 29, verse 13, he explains to them directly what he means, the significance here, so they don't miss it. At the, verse 8, you leave, okay, over here, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of man. And so he's telling them, that's your basic problem. We have on the one hand the commandment of God. We have it in the word of God. We have on the other hand the tradition of man. You come accusing us. You come accusing us of disregarding the traditions of the elders. Understand this. The traditions of the elders are the traditions of man. And those traditions are antithetical by nature to the commandment of God. That's his condemnation. Therefore, you stand condemned. You're more concerned with your man-made traditions, your man-made ceremonies to such a Point that you disregard the word of God, you disregard the commandment of God, you dare charge us with disobedience, understand, here's the problem, you are by definition hypocrites. He doesn't leave it at that. He gives us, here's the fourth word, an illustration of precisely what he means. Look at the 10th verse. For Moses said, and so here's an example, remember the antithesis, we have over here the commandment of God. We have over here the tradition of man. Here's an example. For Moses said, verse 10, here's an example of the commandment of God. Honor your father and your mother. So he appeals directly to one of the Ten Commandments. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. There's a commandment of God. They can't disagree with that. Now he gives them an example of the tradition of man. Verse 11. But you say, If a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. Corban means given to God. And so they had a tradition, the Jews, tradition of the elders, whereby they could dedicate things to God. They could dedicate a certain portion of their wealth or all of their wealth. They could dedicate their possessions. They could dedicate it to God. But the catch was this, having vowed that they would give this to God, They were not required to give it until they died. How convenient is that? So all that I have is Corbin. Aren't I spiritual? I've given it to God, and he will most certainly get it the day I die. The tradition of man. And so you have the commandment of God, honor your father and your mother. You have the tradition of man, Corbin. They come into conflict. Here's the case, a man. His parents are in need, his father and his mother. He knows the commandment of God. He knows what God requires of him. He knows what God commands him to do, to care for, provide for his father and mother. But here's the thing, he cries, Corbin. He appeals to these man-made traditions and says, Mom and Dad, I'd like to help you, but I can't help you because I'm super spiritual. And I've dedicated all that I have to God, and God's going to get it the minute I die. And so because I've dedicated it to God, I can't give any portion of to, to you now. Oh, you hypocrites! 
That is what the Lord Jesus is saying. And he furnishes this undeniable example of how they reject, just leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. He sums it up in verse 13. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. And so my friends, he's saying to my friends, well, not really friends, but scribes and Pharisees, you guys right there, understand this, I am not on trial. You are on trial, and you have been found wanting. The word of God is what I declare. The word of God is what I live. The word of God is what I teach. You hold to the traditions of men to such a degree that you have made void the word of God. That makes your worship vain, vain. Now the fifth word, fifth and final word, and this really brings us to the heart of the text. Correction. And let me read it for you again in its entirety. Beginning in verse 14. And he called the people to him. Right? This isn't for the scribes and Pharisees alone. The people have lived under this nonsense for centuries. The people have been misdirected for centuries. The people have been taught a load of rubbish for centuries. He calls the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Here's the crux of the matter. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. The disciples should have understood that. The people should have understood that. The scribes and Pharisees should have understood that. When God brought the Israelites out of the land of Egypt, we're going way back in time, he gave them what we call, generally speaking, the law. And in that law, he gave them specific laws that were of an eternal nature. Right? Honor your father and your mother. Right? Thou shalt not murder. Uh, laws that are by definition of a moral nature. He gave them, secondly, laws for their governance, politics, how they should set themselves up and run themselves. And then he gave them a bunch of laws governing their religion, all those ceremonies. Do you remember? All those sacrifices and all those feasts concerning the tabernacle and later the temple. And as part of those laws, running throughout those laws, there's a great emphasis on things that are clean and unclean. And so if you have a, an infectious disease, you are unclean. If you have an abnormal discharge, you are unclean. 
If you touch or eat certain kinds of animals, pigs, for example, in the Old Testament, you are unclean. If you come into contact with mildew, you are unclean. Now, here's what they should have understood. There is nothing inherently unclean about any of those things. The fact that God labeled some of these things unclean, God was not saying that these things were bad or evil or wrong in and of themselves. What God was doing was giving the people of Israel object lessons, an object lesson to teach them. I've uh, of late started to pick up uh, little children's books again. You can guess why, little you know, picture books. And you get these little books for two-year-olds and maybe two or three words a page and just this Big picture. Uh, pictures why? Because that's where the children are at at that age in terms of their, in terms of their learning. And so these picture book, books to help them understand and to help them get the meaning of certain words. That is what all these laws were. They were object lessons. They were picture books. Picturing what? Two truths. Let me give them both to you right now and I'll go back and explain them in greater detail. The first is this. God labeled some things clean, some things unclean as an object lesson, as a picture book to teach them and to teach us that we are by nature unclean. He labeled things unclean and clean and said, look, if you come into contact with those things or you experience those things, you are unclean. And I'm doing this so that you understand who you really are. I'm doing this so that you understand what your heart is really like. I'm doing this so that you comprehend that before me, you are unclean. You are sinful. And the second thing I want you to get through these object lessons is this. That in order for you to come into my presence, you must be cleansed. Something must change. And something radical must change. And so the people should have understood this. The people had this teaching. The people had these object lessons. They had these picture books. They had all of these laws governing what's clean and what's unclean. And they should have understood what God is teaching us is this. That we have a fundamental problem. We are unclean. And we have secondly a fundamental need. We must be cleansed in order to enter the presence of the living God. The scribes and the Pharisees have understood neither. As a matter of fact, they've rejected what all of those ceremonies were intended to teach. And they have made those ceremonies the main thing. And they have heaped on top of those ceremonies man-made traditions. And they have made defilement what? An external thing. And the Lord Jesus now corrects this false teaching gathers the people to themselves. I know what you have heard. And I know what you have heard for centuries. They're wrong. It is not what goes into a man. It is not what happens externally that defiles a man. Why? Because the origin of defilement is from within. Let me state it another way in very pointed terms, friend. The origin of evil is within you. Where does evil come from, friend? It comes from you. And it comes from me. In a modern day psychology, they'd be aghast at what I just said. 
modern-day psychology cannot explain the reality of human experience. With the modern-day psychology today, and sadly this has caught on like wildfire in our culture, sadly wildfire even within large segments of evangelicalism, this is the, there is this prevailing notion, fallacy, that we are born blank slates. Right? We're born innocent, completely innocent. And defilement, antisocial behavior, they won't use the word evil, antisocial behavior originates from where? Outside of us. Not me, not you. We're born good, we're born innocent, we're born a blank slate. And it is our environment, what we experience, what other people do, how society fails us, that is what defiles us. That is what accounts for antisocial behavior. And yet I read recently in Time magazine this statement. It just struck me as, 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 as an indictment against so much of modern thinking. Evil is a word we use when we come to the limit of human comprehension. But we sometimes secretly suspect that it is at the core of our very selves. Because it is. Because it is. I've read this here before. Let me read it again. It was out of a Minnesota crime commission years ago. Every baby starts life as a little savage. He is completely selfish and self-centered. He wants what he wants when he wants it. His bottle, his mother's attention, his playmate's toy, his uncle's watch. Deny him these wants and he seethes with rage and aggressiveness, which would be murderous, were he not so helpless. Uh, do you ever watch uh, America's Funniest Home Videos, AFV? I watched them once in a while with Laura, and uh, a couple months back, there was this series of segments of birthday parties. And uh, you know, I chuckle now, but... Uh, it's, a chuckle of embarrassment as I, as I recall this, this, this one video of uh, a little girl, maybe two. I think there were two candles on the birthday cake, two years of age, maybe three. And there she was surrounded by friends and siblings and cousins, just this multitude of kids all around the table and the chocolate cake plunked down in front of her and these two candles. Blow out the candles, love. Blow out the candles. And she was rather pathetic. I mean, she was spitting. She was doing all sorts of things, could not blow out those candles. And suddenly a little blonde kid, a little blonde boy to the next of her, I assume brother, cousin or something, just leans in and for all he's worth blows out those candles. She was ready to rip his head off. <laughs> oh, the look on her face as she lashed out and gave it to him full in the face. Here's the question, friend. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? We think to ourselves, well, that's just a child. A child can't express themselves, hence they're frustrated, hence this is, this is how they express themselves. But as they, as they grow older, they grow out of that. We never grow out of that, friend. We learn to subdue it. We learn to control it, some of us better than others. But we never eradicate it. There is within us this selfish and self-centered existence, which is diametrically opposed to God 
and focused on what we want when we want it. The Lord Jesus, friends, I'm not making this up. This is the Lord Jesus. He declares it and he makes it clear. Friend, your problem is not external. My problem is not external. Our problem is not what we experience. Our problem is not what we come into contact with. Our problem originates from within. Evil comes from within. Defilement. We are not defiled, but what goes in through the mouth and can't touch the heart. We are defiled because of what is already in the heart and expresses itself in all sorts of sins. And that's Christ's point there in verse 21. He says, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality. Notice, I think only four of these are actions. The rest are desires or attitudes, right? Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Again, I think only the first four or five of those words actually concern actions. The rest are all attitudes and conditions of the heart. Here is what is frightening. My heart conceives and commits sins that my hands never carry out. That is my problem as I stand before you, friends. My heart conceives and commits sins that my hands never carry out. Malcolm Muggeridge, he, uh, last century, became a Christian later in life. And as a young man, he was a a journalist uh, in the country of India for some time. In his early 20s, he decided to go for a swim one evening in in the river, isolated part of the river. And at one point, he noticed a woman come down to bathe herself on the other side of the river, and uh, she smiled at him across the river. And at that moment, he was overcome with allurement, and he plunged into the water and swam furiously across the river, seeking to outdistance his conscience. And when he emerged from the water, he was horrified to discover that she wasn't a beautiful young woman but an old wrinkled leper. He was repulsed at the sight of her. As he swam away, a sudden shock gripped him, his own words. It wasn't the old woman who was filthy and repugnant. It was my own heart. Defilement and sin come from within. And all of those laws concerning what's clean, what's unclean, they were object lessons intended and purposefully designed to teach us that fundamental truth that our problem does not reside outside of us. Our problem resides within. Equally true. They were designed to teach and and serve as an object lesson of a second truth. That given what I am, given the defilement and evil within my own heart, Above all else, what do I need? I can't run from it. I can't hide it. And I can't deny it. What do I need? I need a new heart. I need to be cleansed. I need to be 
purged if ever I am to enter the presence of God. Our former house, not our house here in, in Glen Rose, a house back in Peterborough, Ontario. When uh, Allison and I moved in, we noticed that the, the water coming out of the taps, the faucets, uh, the color wasn't quite right. And the smell certainly wasn't quite right. And so we filled up a bottle, took it into a local lab, and they tested it and found all sorts of uh, disease-inducing bacteria in the water. Uh, what did we have to do? The problem wasn't the taps or the sinks or the pipes. The problem was where? In the well. Shock chlorination. Is that what it's called? We had to purge the well in order to do what? To kill the bacteria. We had to go to the source and purge it and cleanse it. And that's what all of those laws were intended to teach us. Firstly, what our problem is, to understand it clearly, our hearts are evil, they are defiled. To teach us, secondly, that we need new hearts, we must be cleansed, we must, must be purged. And notice what Mark mentions in here, it's almost a throwaway statement, and yet it is one of the most significant statements in the entire text, in the middle of verse 19, thus he, that is, thus Christ, declared all foods clean. What, what has that got to do with anything? Beautiful commentary because Mark is declaring what? That in the Lord Jesus Christ we have what? We have the fulfillment of all of those ceremonial laws. We have the fulfillment of all that those laws were teaching. Those laws were teaching us our problem, our uncleanliness, defilement, internal. And those laws were teaching us our need for cleansing. And they were stirring in people hope of one who would cleanse them. And with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment of all of those laws. He fulfilled all of those ceremonial laws. And he is the one by whom we are made clean. How? Well, when the Lord Jesus sends forth the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God takes hold of me. And by the Spirit of God's power, I believe. I believe in Christ. I rest in Christ. And I repent. I turn from my sin. Uh, that's the work of regeneration, a new birth. Whereby the Spirit of God makes me one with Christ. And so the Spirit of God, who is the power of God, takes hold of me. And I take hold of Christ by faith. And these are the... These are the bonds that knit us together in a marital union. I become one with the Lord Jesus Christ, like this. One, indissoluble, unbreakable. It is eternal. And because I am one with Christ, understand this, Christian. If you're not a Christian, please understand this. Because I am one with Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection are mine. I am one with him in his death. I am one with him in his burial. And I am one with him in his resurrection. Do you know what that means? It means, firstly, he has removed the penalty of my sin. Because I am one with him in this union, and I am one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection, he has removed the penalty of my sin. How? He was made unclean, that I might be made clean. Or as we heard it last Sunday from 2 Corinthians 5, he who knew no sin became sin, that I might become the righteousness of God. But there's more to it. It's, it's distinct, but it is inseparable. 
that because I am one with Christ, the Spirit has taken hold of me, I have taken hold of Christ by faith. Because I am one with him, I am one with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Not only has Christ removed the penalty of my sin, praise God, he has broken the tyranny of my sin. He has broken the power of my sin. Although I still sin in the flesh as a human being, the tyranny of sin has been broken. And my hope and expectation is what? That as the penalty has been removed, as the tyranny has been removed, there is a day coming in glory when the very presence and all the effects of sin will also be removed. It is final, total, absolute cleansing through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You get it, friends? The text is actually a warning. It is a warning. It is a warning of vain worship. That phrase, let me just direct it to you as we conclude. That phrase at the start of verse 14 is quite something. He called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you. And understand how I would love to gather in the four corners of evangelicalism today and say, hear me and understand. Vain worship is rampant within professing Christians today. And it is rampant. Why? Because they have failed to understand these two truths. Friend, the starting point of the gospel is this. It is the doctrine of radical depravity or total depravity. It is the undeniable truth of who and what we are in our inner beings, in our hearts before God, whereby we are defiled. And all that we do say and think, however good it might appear to our fellow man, is as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. How many people, even within evangelicalism, deny that this day? But when you deny that, what are you left with? When we reject the doctrine of total depravity, we have no other choice but to reduce sin to actions rather than a condition of the heart. And when we reduce sins to merely actions rather than a condition of the heart, what do we do? We come up with a sin list, a list of do's and don'ts. And we think that as long as we're adhering to these do's and don'ts and we've said a little prayer and asked Jesus into our lives, then we're okay. That this is what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means to believe. But in actual fact, we have this little sin list which is built on this false false premise that sin isn't a condition of the heart. It's simply my actions, which is based on the rejection of the doctrine of radical depravity and what the Lord Jesus so clearly affirms here. And as we continue to build, what do we begin to trust in? We begin to trust in our adherence to our obedience of our sinless. And we begin to think that as long as I do uh, the best I can and avoid those sins which I really think are bad, Whether they're in the Bible or not, whether they're actually found in Scripture or they belong under the banner, the traditions of men, 
I begin to think that my performance and my adherence to these things and the fact that I refrain from that and refrain from this, these are actually what merit favor in God's sight. These things actually make God pleased with me. And I know I've done one or two bad things. Well, that's what I believe in Jesus for. And Jesus has taken that away at the cross and all is good with my soul. And you know, I just do the best I can. And here's a wonderful truth. I've heard this out of the lips of so many people. And God knows my heart. He knows I'm sincere. Friend, God does know your heart. That's not good news. (laughs) That's terrible news. He knows the secrets of our hearts. He knows precisely what you were thinking earlier this morning. He knows precisely what you were stewing and steaming about last night. He knows the dregs to which you descend in our thoughts and in our hearts. He knows what comes out of our hearts, whether or not we ever give expression to it in action. And we stand defiled. But here is the great truth. And here is the glorious gospel. That for those of us who are one with the Lord Jesus Christ, for those of us who are one with him, the Spirit taking hold of us, we taking hold of him by faith, When God looks at us, he sees Christ's heart. He sees not just his perfect life, but every perfect thought, every perfect desire. And in the Lord Jesus Christ, praise God, the penalty of sin is removed. It is paid in full. And praise God, the tyranny of sin has been broken. Bow with me as we pray. And as we seek the Lord's blessing upon what we have heard this day. Our God, your word is living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit. Of joints and of marrow. And discerning the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. Our Father, when we stop, when we pause to consider that truth. We we stand dismayed. Uh, We stand defiled. We stand condemned. And yet we praise you because in the Lord Jesus Christ we find cleansing. We find a fountain filled with blood that flows from Emmanuel's veins. And when we wash ourselves in that fountain, he washes away all our guilty stains. And how we praise you for the gospel, recognizing it and embracing it and proclaiming that it is indeed your power for salvation to everyone who believes. We ask that you receive our thanks, that you receive our worship, of which you alone are worthy, as we offer in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.